Luke chapter 15, hear the word of the Lord. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. 
Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When I have the privilege and the opportunity to either teach younger pastors or candidates about preaching or to coach them along, I always remind them if they're going to use an illustration about a real living person, that they should get that person's permission to do so. And I want you to know that I have the permission of my daughter to tell this story about when she was young and we were visiting my wife's parents up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Natalia was doing things like she liked to do, like climbing in a tree. And uh, she was climbing in this tree. She wasn't too high, about four feet, five feet up, let's say. And she fell out of the tree. Now, she was saved because her shorts caught on a branch. And so she was suspended upside down uh, a few feet off the ground. And instead of saying, Mother, would you please come extricate me from this situation? She began screaming and flailing about. Sandy was closer, so she ran up to her, and then I got there soon thereafter. We uh, freed her from her predicament and uprighted her back onto the ground. But because she was flailing so much uh, and so agitated in the process, she knocked one of Sandy's earrings off. And it happened to be uh, Sandy's best earrings that she had. And it was in the, the thick grass of summer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we looked... And we looked, and we looked, and we looked that afternoon, and we could not find the earring. But that night, I kept thinking about that earring, and thinking about the physics of how this was working out, and I had a a theory about where that earring could be, and so I applied my theory the next morning, and lo and behold, in plain sight, there was the earring. And Sandy was delighted that she... Uh, was able to recover this lost earring. You've had experiences like that, haven't you? You've lost something, and then either soon thereafter, or perhaps weeks, or months, or maybe even years, you've, you've found this lost item, and you understand the joy of finding that which was lost. Here we have these three parables, some of the most familiar parables, and that's the theme of all three parables, the joy of finding that which was lost. Now, in order to understand these parables, as any parable, it's helpful, if we have it, to understand the context in which Jesus spoke the parable. Why did he speak this parable? Well, once again, as verse 1 tells us, many sinners and many tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus to hear him teach. Now, the tax collectors were Jewish men, who had gotten a commission from the Romans to collect taxes from their Jewish brethren and give them to the Romans. So you can imagine how popular they were among their Jewish brethren. And they also had a tendency to line their pockets by charging in excess of what they were commissioned to charge. Uh, Then it describes sinners. Well, these must have been well-known sinners, notorious sinners. And they were drawing near to Jesus. That's not the first time. Tax collectors and sinners, especially in the Gospel of Luke, were drawn to hear Jesus. 
Well, not for the first time, the Pharisees and the scribes, we've met the Pharisees and the scribes before, the Pharisees, they were the strict sect of the strict uh, uh, order of Jews that were very devoted. They were trying to separate themselves from sin and be very devoted to the law of God. They were the best of the best, the strictest of the strict. And the scribes were those who devoted themselves to uh, understanding and teaching the law of God. Well, not for the first time, they grumbled when they saw the company that Jesus kept. Uh, They grumbled and said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Because in their mind, a religious teacher, a representative of God, wouldn't, wouldn't defile himself, wouldn't make himself unclean with people like that. Already in Luke, they've leveled this criticism. If you go back to chapter 5 of Luke and look at verses 27 to 32, uh, we find the same sort of situation. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi, this tax collector, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And here they are. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the first answer that Jesus gave to this grumbling was, Who needs a physician? The well or the sick? The sick. sick. Exactly. And so that was his answer. It was based on need. It was based on need. That's why I spend time with these people, because they have a need. Now, in Luke chapter 15, he adds to that idea the idea of joy. Not only the question of need, but also the question of joy. And that's what ties these three parables together, in addition to the lost item being found. And he answers them with this first parable. And in this first parable, in verses 3 and 4 we find a fairly prosperous shepherd who has a flock of 100 sheep and he loses 1% of his sheep. 1%. He loses one of the 100. And what he does is he puts a higher priority temporarily on the one sheep that is lost. And he leaves the 99. He doesn't say in what condition he left them. We can assume he left them cared for. Uh, in some sort of a safe situation, but he leaves them. And he makes all of his focus and all of his effort on finding the one sheep. And then when he finds him, he treats the sheep, sheep with tenderness, actually putting the sheep on his shoulders and going home. And the text says he headed back rejoicing. But not only was he rejoicing himself, but when he got back, he invited his friends and his neighbors and his family members to join in his rejoicing. That's the story, and then Jesus applies it in verse 7. He says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, it's not entirely clear what that means in terms of the 99 who need no repentance. This might have been something of an ironic dig at the Pharisees. 
saying to them, you who think you need no repentance, well, uh, there's no joy over people like you. It may be like that, or it may be a hypothetical sort of situation. A hypothetical situation of saying, if there is such a person that needs no repentance, there's more joy over the sinner who comes back than over this kind of person who needs no repentance. And if that's the situation, it's not so much a direct dig, but it is a question not only for the Pharisees, but for all of us to ask the question, is there such a person like that? And, more specifically, am I such a person like that? Have I behaved in such a way that I have no need of repentance? So, so the parable, the way it ends, it pushes it back on us to ask ourselves that question. Now, the second one, he changes from a man, a shepherd man, to a woman. And in verse 8, he says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin? Now, this woman has ten items, and she loses ten percent of those items. So the first man lost one percent. The second uh, person, the woman, lost ten percent of her items. So her loss was a lot greater. And the first one was a fairly prosperous shepherd, a significant flock. The second was a woman who is apparently not wealthy, and she has this meager savings, and she loses 10% of her meager savings. So you might think that this is going down in terms of what's lost because it was a sheep and now it's simply a silver coin. But on the contrary, it's actually going up. She lost significantly more of her net worth, we could say, uh, than that first man. And what does she do? She does something similar to what the shepherd did. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors, it's actually her girlfriends and her her female neighbors, and says the same thing. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is a a similar parable. Like the shepherd, the woman focused all of her attention on the lost item and laid aside the items that had not been lost yet. Uh, Like the shepherd, she rejoiced and invited others to rejoice with her. Like in the first parable, the message is, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And like the shepherd and the woman, God, as he gives the application here in verse 10, God not only rejoices, but God invites others to join in his rejoicing. It says that there is joy before whom? The angels of God. So it's not just that God is rejoicing, but He is inviting heaven to rejoice. He is inviting angels to rejoice over one sinner who repents. Now, I want you to notice a few things that are implicit in these first two parables before we get to the third. Notice that Jesus justified His own actions by pointing people to what God is like. Interesting. They were grumbling about how He was acting, And he answered them by saying what God is like and what God does, how he acts. What is Jesus doing here? He is identifying himself, not explicitly, but implicitly in these parables with God. So he's justifying his actions by God's actions. Also, observe that sinners must turn from sin in order to be found. 
So, uh, in, in these parables, it talks about the 99 persons who don't need repentance and the one person who repents. And then the second one, there will be joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. How are we to be found? Well, if we're to be found, we need to repent. But, neither of these parables really tells us what repentance is. And it doesn't paint repentance at all. It doesn't portray repentance. Neither of these do. What does the lost sheep do? Nothing. What does the lost coin do? Nothing. And so these are curious, these first two parables, because they're, they're parables about repentance, but there's no image of repentance in these two parables. The lost sheep doesn't come back. The lost coin doesn't come rolling back. They don't do anything. The initiative is all on the part of the shepherd, all on the part of the woman. And so we need to put these two together, uh, that we need to repent in order to be found, but the initiative is all on God. He's the one that makes this happen. But what does repentance look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, because there's a, a third parable in which the lost item is no longer an animal or an inanimate object that can't portray repentance, but it is a human being. It is a son. And in this third parable, which is one of the most famous parables of all the parables, and even in our, our society today, we have the expression, the prodigal son. This is a well-known parable. But in this parable, a man loses 50% of his sons. So now we have ramped it up considerably. Not only is it ramped up from sheep to coin to son, but it's also 1%, 10%, 50%. The man had two sons, and he lost one of them. But not by accident. He lost the son because the younger son went to his father and said, Father, I want my inheritance now. All that is coming to me, I want it now. And it says that the father gave it to him. Not only did he give him his inheritance, it says that he gave both of them their inheritance. If you look at verse 2, I'm sorry, 12, it says, and he divided his property between them. But those brothers treated that inheritance differently. Because the idea, and if we go back and look at the laws of the land and the customs of the time, fathers could do this. They could put the, the... the property in the hands of their sons, but the understanding was that the sons would let their father continue to benefit from that property as long as the father lived. So they were adding them to the account, as it were, but what a responsible, loving son would do would allow his father to continue to benefit from the property as long as he lived. That's what the older brother did. That's not what the younger brother did. The younger brother cashed in all his chips. He sold whatever property he had, and he turned it into some sort of, some sort of liquid asset, some sort of cash or coins, and he went away to a far country. And then it says that he used that property that was his father's hard-earned property, and he squandered his property in verse 13 in what's described as reckless Living. What happens when somebody devotes himself or herself to reckless living? Your property does not generally increase. In fact, it's very easy to spend a fortune in this kind of living, and that's what happened to him. 
He spent everything, and then he had the misfortune of a severe famine arising in that country. And so uh, work was scarce, and he, he then hired himself out, and he hits rock bottom. Because he is a Jewish man, and now he has hired himself out to a Gentile of that far country, a non-Jew, and he is feeding pigs. Now for Jews, pigs were unclean animals. So he is feeding pigs, and not only is he feeding pigs, but he doesn't have enough, and he's so hungry that he's looking at the pig food, and he's wishing that he could eat it, but apparently he's so closely supervised that he can't even sneak some of the pig food. And it says that nobody would give him anything, and he is slowly starving to death. And then it says that he came to himself. He came to himself. And he said, Now, my father's servants live better than I do. My father's servants have enough to eat. And here I am starving to death. So I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. Make me one of your servants. And he was confident enough that his father would at least show him that grace. That he would make him one of his servants so he he wouldn't starve to death. And he knew that he had treated his father with such contempt and such hatred that, that his father would be completely justified in disowning him as a son forever. And so he arises and he goes. And it says that the father saw him from far off. And he recognized his silhouette. And his father ran to him. And the son had been rehearsing this speech. When the time came, this is what I'm going to say. And he begins his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, some interpreters think that the father cut him off and he didn't get to finish the speech. Others say that when he saw the father running to him uh, in order to receive him, he didn't need to finish the petition to be asked, to be lowered, or in his case, raised only to the level of a servant. And the father reacted immediately. He embraced him. He kissed him. And the father said, quickly, bring the robe to get rid of these rags. Bring the ring, which shows that he's a a son, a member of the family. And bring the shoes to put on these these bare feet. And then he says, go kill. You know that calf that we've been been fattening up for for a celebration? Go kill that fattened calf. And let's have a party. Let's celebrate. And so they enter in, and the celebration begins. And if this were going to be like the other two parables, this is where the parable would end. They've begun to rejoice, because the lost item was found. But we left out, or left waiting in the wings, another character. That was the older brother. Now, I have to say that it looks like there was some, in the excitement, perhaps some neglect of informing the older brother of what was going on. He was out working in the fields, perhaps supervising, perhaps laboring himself. And he overhears the music. And he has to call a servant 
and say, what is happening? And the servant is very excited and says, your brother's back. Isn't this great? And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And he's thrown a party. Isn't this wonderful? But the brother was angry. And he refused to go in. And so for the second time in this parable, the father goes out toward a son. And he tries to convince the son, the older son, to come in. And the older son lets loose on his father and says, I have slaved for you all these years. I have never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me even a calf to celebrate with my friends. But now the fattened calf you kill for him, or a lamb, he says, and you fill the fattened calf for him. This this son of yours, he won't own him as a brother, this son of yours who has has squandered your possessions on prostitutes, I think he's, he's just, he doesn't know that, but it's probably a pretty good presumption that that was one of the, the expenses that this young man had made. And he says, I will not go into such a celebration. And the father calmly and patiently says, You're always with me, older son, and everything I have is yours. And if we're reading this right, that's true. And this older son would have received twice the possessions of the younger son. So if the customs hold in this parable, the younger son would have squandered a third of the, the property of the, the household. And the older son would have retained two-thirds, a right over two-thirds. And so he, when he says, everything I have is yours, that's true. He already put it in his hands. He says, but we had to rejoice. Now, the way this is translated here, it says it was fitting to celebrate, but it could well be translated, it was necessary to celebrate. Why? Because this, your brother, your brother, was dead. Now, he didn't know that he had physically died, but in terms of the family, he was dead. In terms of the father, he was dead to the father. And he said he was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost and is found. That's the parable. That's a familiar parable. Probably not new to many of you. But at the end of the parable, the audience is left hanging. It really doesn't come to a conclusion, a closure. The father's out in the field, and he's remonstrating with the older brother. And we don't know what the older brother's going to do. We don't know whether he's going to go in to the party or whether he's going to stay out in the field and refuse to join the party. Now, the older brother, in the hands of biblical interpreters, often gets some rough treatment. He gets criticized very severely oftentimes. But in the parable, he is presented as the model son. How many of us would like to have a son who is, was as devoted as this son. How many of us look back on our youth and think, I wish I had been more of a model son, obeying my parents' commands and, and, and serving them and being with them. He was a, a model son in many ways. But he didn't understand his father in one regard. 
He didn't understand his father's compassion. This parable is like the parable we saw of the the Good Samaritan. It turns on one word. The dramatic action turns on one word, and it's the same word in both cases. It says that he saw and he had compassion. That's what the Good Samaritan did. He saw and he had compassion. And here the father saw and he had compassion. And that's what this model older son was missing. He did not understand compassion for the lost. He didn't understand compassion for the erring. He didn't understand compassion for the wayward. And that's what he was missing out on. And in many ways, going back to the context here, this is directed to whom? It's directed to the Pharisees and their scribes. Now, the Pharisees also come in for a decent amount of rough treatment, much of which they deserved. Jesus was very, very clear and hard with them sometimes. But other times, he recognized that in some ways they were model Jews. They were the strictest of the strict. They were the most obedient of the most obedient. They were models. But what were they missing? They were missing compassion for the lost. Compassion for people who just weren't as upright as they were. Compassion for those who just couldn't pull off their religiosity like they could. Compassion for those who just couldn't be as as strict as they were. They were missing that. And so, when they saw Jesus hanging out with these people, they criticized and they grumbled and they said, what are you doing hanging out with people like that? They didn't understand compassion. Jesus' compassion. God's compassion. And they made a mistake. The mistake of the older brother. You see, he was a model in terms of his obedience But he was mistaken in thinking that his obedience was the basis of his relationship with the Father. That's That was what he was arguing. And and we can be sympathetic with them. He says, Father, you're you're honoring the dishonorable and you're dishonoring the honorable. But he didn't understand the basis of his relationship with the Father. It wasn't based on his obedience. And he was saying, I've done this for you. And what have you done for me? That's what he was missing out on. Compassion and also thinking that he had a claim on the Father's love because of how obedient he had been. Did he go into the party? I don't know. But the invitation is there at the end. And we see that there are two ways to miss the party. And now it's back to us. Not only to the Pharisees, but it's to us as well. We may identify more with the younger brother. And the younger brother was missing out on the festivities in the father's house because he was in the far country of his sin. And the older brother was missing out on the festivities in his father's house because he was standing on his righteousness in the field. And there are two ways to miss the joy of the Father. There are two ways to miss the party. There are two ways to miss the feast. We can miss the feast by remaining, remaining in the far country of our sin. And now we finally know what repentance looks like. It means turning from that back to God. But we can also remain absent from the Father, far from Him, by standing on our goodness, 
by standing on our righteousness, by insisting that we deserve something from God. Well, if we're not excluded forever because of our sin, if we're not included because of our righteousness, then how? How can we enter in? Well, when the Jews heard this first parable about the shepherd seeking his sheep, they would have thought of Ezekiel 34, which we read earlier in the the service, that the Lord is the one who seeks after his lost sheep. And Jesus made the connection very explicitly. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How can the younger brother come in from the far country through the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep? How can the older brother come in from the field through the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep? That's how you may come in. That's how I may come in. We need to turn from our sin, but we also need to turn from our righteousness. The only way that we can be ushered into the presence of the Father is through the Son, His Son, the elder brother, the the true elder brother, who was the perfect Son, who then laid down His life for the sheep, thus showing us the compassion of God and showing us the only way to the Father. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. And I pray for those of us who identify with the younger brother in our dissipation and our wasteful spending of our our time, our lives, our resources, our disobeying Your commands. Lord, I pray that You would call us younger brothers back to You, that we would turn and return. And some of us may identify more with the older brother we tried hard to do what You've said, and we've seen that others aren't trying as hard as we are. And we think that perhaps You will love us because we've tried so hard. I pray, O oh God, that You would enable us, if we're that older brother, to lay our side, our claims on You because of our, our supposed righteousness. And then all of us, younger brothers, older brothers, that we would come to You through Jesus. That You would grant us repentance, turning, And You would grant us faith in the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. And we pray this in His name. Amen.